Welcome back to the podcast. 2021. 2021. Woo! Wait, did we already record in 2021? I'm not sure. We were right on the cusp last time. I don't remember if it was right before or right after the year change. But this is, we're going to call this our first yeah. of the new year. It's non-Chinese New Year. That's, <laughs> that's correct. It's not Chinese New Year. What's the term for non-Chinese? I know non-Japanese people are gaijins, right? Mm. But I don't know what non-Chinese... I thought it was gaijim. Oh, yeah, that guy Jim. They thought... Well, well that guy Jim is not Japanese. Yeah, so. I think that's where it, that's where that's it came good, from. That, that, you're right. Wow, I never thought about that before. Uh, false etymologies for Japanese words. That's one of our many specialties. Yeah, we, we should get Devin in for that one. Yeah, he would know. My brother's <laughs> been studying Japanese, is yeah. what Will is referring to. He's what like, hasn't he been doing? Um, I could I could mention a couple things, but I won't. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. That feels like a trap. What I'm going to do is pour the coffee, and the very exciting, uh, we have Bailey's today to add to our coffee, which I should mention is a Christmas gift from my sister Caitlin and her husband Mike. Oh. The Bailey's is, and, uh, and I'm very, very grateful. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Katie and Mike. We will enjoy. So I did want to, before we get into the topic for today, yeah, I wanted to update you on my New Year's resolutions because we discussed those. Oh, great! On our last episode, uh, so and I told you my main five, and I just want to keep myself honest. But if you're interested, or even if you're not, yeah, I. Either way, consider I'm gonna... me your victim. <laughs> I really do. I always have. <laughs> Uh, so I had five. Wait, uh, wait, give me the Baileys first. I need, oh, I yes, need something yeah. to weather the storm. Let's get our priorities straight here. Here's the Baileys. Brought to More? you by... Tell me when. Um, Tell me when. That's fine. Okay. I just want a drinkable temperature is what I aim for with my first creaming. <laughs> I really am upset about the way that you chose to say that. And there's the trademark Will Sip. Cheers. cheers. Cheers, man. Good to see you. Yeah. So tell me about uh, your resolve. Okay, well, so we're we're only a little more than a week into 2021. Uh, I have not made any progress on a source of income. I have not made any progress on moving to a different place, although I am taking a trip to Idaho. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to uh, getting in shape, I have been eating a little better, avoid, avoiding simple carbs. I've been getting out on a walk pretty much every day. Great. Uh, push-ups occasionally. Wow. Uh, not all of that is totally new this year, but I, I'm, I have a renewed focus on it. Um, actually, I think I've now like broken my lifetime record for push-ups, which is cool. Wow. Can uh, I ask you what? If you want to know. I do. I, I've done 41. Wow. 41. And I've done it twice now, so it wasn't a fluke. Nice. The first time I did 41 push-ups, I was like, I must have counted wrong, because mm. it was a big leap from where I was. Mm. Uh but then the second time it happened, I thought, well, I guess I guess that's just who I am now. A strong, strong man. Yeah, you must be strong. I mean, the last time I did that many push-ups, I weighed like 30 pounds less than I do now. Right. So it's it's harder. Yeah, there's more weight to push up. Can I feel your can I feel your your bicep? If you insist. It's there. Yeah. You can feel it. Yeah. You can. I expected a little more, but you know. Oh, did you want me to flex while yeah, you... Yeah, what All the right, hell? sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, there's the actual... Ladies. Sorry, I forgot I was meant to make that impressive. Find, yeah, I wasn't just trying to grump you. <laughs> or was I? I have no idea. Find him on Tinder. Swipe whichever way is the good way. Yeah, yeah. Ladies, he's still single and still desperately, desperately lonely. 
You're talking... Okay. Anyway, uh, so, and then the other two uh, resolutions, the big ones, were to try stand-up and to write, and I have cleverly been combining those, so I've been writing some of my potential stand-up routine. Uh, and I've actually written a huge amount of material, most of it very bad. That sounds uh, like two birds with one stone, but how else would you work on stand-up? Voice memos, I guess? Okay, I'll allow it. Uh... I mean, it, it doesn't achieve the goal of trying stand-up, but it does get me close. Right. To okay. It. Yes. So. That's, that, that works. I think it sort of works. I think it sort of works. It works for me. I also did some writing yesterday that was not stand-up material. Great. So there's been some of both. Anyway, I just want to let you know that uh, it, I'm not off, I wouldn't say I'm off to a stellar start on the year, but uh, I wasn't completely full of it with those resolutions either. I think this time of year for me is always like about just trying to weather the the sort of seasonal holiday depression. Mm. Usually, um, shortly after New Year's, I my serotonin just goes off a cliff. Yeah, and I'm just totally miserable. Um, Which is funny because you don't care about holidays. Yeah, I mean it's, I mean probably my my nonchalance about them is because I'm I'm aware of 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 the aftermath. Right. So I sort of I my the way the way I deal with my my uh, mental stability is that I try to be even keeled about everything. I don't try to excite myself. Right. No high highs um, and no low lows. So I'm not doing you know, I'm eating pretty healthy, not by any intent of my own and you know, I'm doing fine, but mostly mostly I'm just sort of in my hibernation phase. I'm not trying to achieve Anything right now. Yeah. Except, you know, being a good dad and a good good to the family. Well, those are those are important. Yeah, I mean I think my baseline is pretty good. It's not like, you know, I'm doing nothing. But I'm not I don't right now my goals are to just stay the course. Yeah. Play Zelda when I have a minute to myself. I think in some ways that's a much healthy healthier mindset. Um, especially in the winter and especially with various disturbing uh, events going on in the world. Um, I think the reality is I'm trying to, uh, you know, change my life and be a better person and all that New Year's-y stuff. And uh, I don't feel all that good about it. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself Mm. uh, and not really meeting all of those expectations. And so part of me is like, oh, it's good. I'm on the path. I'm making progress. Another part of me is like, Am I flagellating myself for for no for no particular purpose? I wonder. I wonder that myself. About, about you. About me. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think for me, the stakes are pretty high with these things because I've had you know handful of or handfuls of sort of full on collapses, mm. emotional, mental collapses in my life, and I just can't you know do that anymore. Especially with parenting, you have to really be hold yourself accountable and avoid those situations for sure you know, yeah i can't you know i'm not like a 20 something living by myself who could just like throw a blanket over my head and watch tv i can kind of do that <laughs> you can do that for 20 minutes yeah not three months <laughs> yeah but it's the good thing is that i, I sort of enjoy uh cooking and, and and parenting and playing games so i can sort of do that very casually, um, but this time of year especially is one where I'm extra careful. Yeah, no, that, to not that makes try sense. to overextend myself. And I guess I haven't had a lot of really 
spectacular lows in my life. Like if I if I get depressed, it's in the form of just, sort of just lethargy. Like mm-hmm. I just don't feel like doing anything. Yeah. And so it doesn't so much feel like oh I'm in the depths of despair. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't feel like a crisis. It doesn't feel like um, the bottom of the pit. Mm-hmm. It just feels kind of icky. Uh, yeah, and that happens. That happens to me pretty regularly, and it will go on for weeks or or months, uh, or or sometimes just an hour. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's odd. Sometimes you can just snap out of it. That's sort of where I am like, now. I'm kind of yeah, but I know that I could go much, much lower. Lower, and that's what I can't. Allow. Yeah, and I feel like in some ways maybe I'm maybe I am on the opposite struggle because maybe I'd like my life to be more tumultuous. Like, my life doesn't have low lows, it doesn't have high highs. It, I've occasionally had something that might be classified as one of those, mm. but but not often and not recently. Well, you enjoy, I think, you know, we've talked about this a few times, you you enjoy a, 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 band, a bandwidth of comfort. Mm. Like, you're, you don't actively try to, to, to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Very I, I often. do sometimes, but n- but, but not, not like regularly. No, not regularly. Whereas, I, mean, I think that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, if you want a more tumultuous life, you know, do something you hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I find it really hard to to do something that I don't want to do. Even even little stuff like I'm, you know, I'm doing forty push ups. Mm. I don't want to do that. Like it only takes what. It only takes, you know, whatever, 60 seconds yeah. or something. And it's not, it's not that it's super hard when I'm doing it, right? But it's that I really, really don't want to start doing it. Yeah. Uh, even though I know, like, it, it, I feel better later and my self-esteem goes up and it's working on my long-term goals. I don't, I don't want, it's almost all I can do to get myself to commit to 60 seconds every two days. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I, uh, same with me and I'm, I'm, uh, uh, in, in the in the place where I'm at right now, I'm not even willing to consider trying that. Yeah, because I'm too. But I but I, I I look forward to in the very near future to aspiring to get back to exercise. Right. But at the same time, if I have to wait till spring, so be it. Yeah. You know, I'm off the market. I can just <laughs> let myself go. Half of this, half of this pandemic, I was just my my hair was touching my shoulder blades and my beard was yeah. You had a real Jesus neck. look going. Yeah, on. yeah. It didn't save me. I was hoping. It did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking like Jesus, as it turns out, is not is not enough. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm feeling like I got to make changes, but I am going out to Idaho. I'm going to go visit my cousins out in Idaho. I'm going to drive out. And I'm I'm hoping that that will be a little bit of a reset for me. Just have a little bit of an adventure and uh, get out of um, out out of the rut, just physically. You should. And, yeah, uh, I'm excited. I think for it's going to be good. I think it's going to be cool. At least just a change of pace. Yeah, and we're going to. We talked about we're going to try to record a remote episode. We are. That's actually very exciting to me. It'll be cool. Yeah, it'll be a new thing. It's. Uh... Oh yeah, so I should tell you when I'm leaving. But I figured you were leaving right. You were <laughs> so I gotta go mid sentence. It's been nice talking to you. Boop, boop. Famio. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's now our sign off. I also like that you've now named the company that we swore we were not going to name. Yeah, we uh, didn't name it in that episode. No, that's true. So it doesn't matter. Uh, if anyone's following the breadcrumbs here, please don't tell on us. 
Uh, yeah, no, so I'm leaving a week from tomorrow. A uh, week from tomorrow. week from tomorrow. So we could record one more episode before I go. And I, yeah. hope, I hope we will. Uh, all right. Is that is that a good enough check-in? Can we move on into our actual topic for today? Um, yes. Great. So I will allow it. Thank you. Your Honor. So what's what's the what's the run out? We don't have a sort of list to go through today. We're gonna just we're doing one thing. Correct. And then we're gonna close up shop. Well, I do have a rough outline for this episode. I don't know if we're gonna stick to it or not. Um, do you want to walk me through that, or would you just want to? I think probably it's better if I don't walk you through. It. I okay. If we just go. Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. Just drag me through it. I'm gonna drag you through it, and we may not follow this outline at all. But so today our topic is a song of ice and fire. And also Game of Thrones. So for those of you who don't know, the novels on which Game of Thrones was based are called, collectively are called A Song of Ice and Fire. The first novel is called A Game of Thrones, and they chose that for the title of the show. Can you do a little hum of the, the theme song from the show? Of course. <laughs> I was trying to remember I haven't seen the show in so long that I was about to start humming something that was probably from Lord of the Rings I really think one of the happiest periods in my life was when I was driving over to my sister's house in West Cornwall two or three times a week to watch several episodes at a stretch. Oh, when you guys were you were you were catching up. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. That's on my outline. Okay. We'll get to that. That was a golden time in my life. Um, but I wanted to start with your impressions of what you've read so far, because you have seen the entire television show, Game of Thrones, but you only just started the first book, A Game of Thrones, uh, and I think you're a few chapters in now, and I'd love to know like what that experience has been like for you. Um, it's been great. Um, um, let's see, yeah, I'm about like 100 pages in right now. Um, nice. Nice. Um, I think I'm just about to get to the part of the the um, the the bedding of Daenerys Targaryen. Oh yeah, we should probably say for our audience that there will be spoilers in this episode. If you haven't seen Game of Thrones, <laughs> you probably never plan to at this point. If you haven't seen Game of Thrones, you should, but you won't. So yeah. or go watch all seven seasons. Yeah, and oh, eight seasons. Eight seasons. Although, don't watch season eight. Go watch the only seven seasons. There isn't an eighth. Uh, so yeah, we'll sorry. There are definitely spoilers. Uh, people should yeah. just know that going. Spoiler out. alert. So you, this your podcast is. <laughs> uh, you're about to get to the betting of. Jesus. Yeah, and what's uh, one thing that stands out that I didn't expect was the what it seems like uh, the ages of all the characters is much younger than in the show. Correct. So. It, which makes it much darker. Yeah. Because the show is so dark. And like the, you know, Jon Snow and Rob Stark and, and sort of that, they are sort of 
basically adults, you know? Yeah. Especially in the medieval setting. Right. Like, they're young, but they're men. Correct. But in the book, everyone, you know, Daenerys Targaryen is like 13 years old. Right. And she's about to get mounted by a horse lord, and it's just like... Right. It really cuts deep how all the terrible things that I know are going to happen. Yeah. Knowing that the characters are that much younger than I would have imagined them to be. Yeah, and there are a few things going on there. There are reasons for that. Um, I mean, one of them is that... uh, people did reach adulthood culturally much earlier in medieval times. Mm-hmm. So a 13-year-old girl could easily get married and be expected to mm-hmm. you know, lose her virginity to whoever her father had chosen for her and then bear his children with all the risk that that entailed. Um, that, that was a thing that, in fact, happened. I don't know if it was as common as maybe we think, but it did happen. Mm. Uh, and young men, similarly, you know, at 15 or 16, they were considered to be ready to go off to battle and risk their lives and rule kingdoms and that sort of thing. So that's number one. I'm sorry to make this a lecture, but... <laughs> Keep, that, that's what I, I... I'm prepared for that. That's uh, what I came here for. <laughs> so that's number one. Uh, number two is obviously uh, casting an actress to actually have that scene where she's deflowered by the horse lord. Uh, would be extremely difficult if she had to look like she was 13. Uh, it would be hard to, to find that person, it would be hard to film that scene, and it would be really hard to do it without accusations of peddling a kind of child smut. Mm. So they yeah. chose to make the character older. I think ambiguously, I don't think her age is actually stated, but we feel like in the show she's probably 17 at the beginning, which is still very young, but a big difference from 13. Yeah, it And the actress, of course, was older than that. Yeah. Amelia uh, Clark. Amelia Clark was same namesake. That's right. Yeah, a yeah. fellow. A We're fellow basically, Clark. you know, family. If you ever hear this, <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for my uh, percentage cut. Yeah, yeah, that's been lost in the mail for quite a, for quite a while. So that's yeah. Part of it is is and oh, and of course it's challenging to it would be extremely challenging to find a 13 year old actress who had the emotional range and the gravitas mm. to play such an important character, even the, if the sexual thing weren't an issue. Yeah, and the sex appeal, because her character was a big draw. Yeah, that, I, that was part of the... I, I, it's been a while since I have saw the first season, but I do recall it was pretty steamy. Yes, and that's part of the pitch of the show, is that you do get to see some, some beautiful naked young women yeah. from time to time, sometimes for plot reasons and sometimes not. Yeah. Um, and the... Third thing that's happening, and this actually gets us into some pretty interesting stuff, is that George R. R. Martin intended for there to be a large time gap somewhere in the middle of the book series. Hmm. He intended for there to be a five-year gap between two of the books so that the characters who started out super young yeah. could age up and kind of age into these more mature roles. And then he got pretty deep into writing that book. I don't know if it was the third or the fourth I think it might have been the fourth book when he realized that wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was too much. Too of much having to, to sort skip of, over. Yeah, it was like it wasn't believable that all these people would kind of stand still and grow up for five years in the midst yeah. of so many consequential events. And it's it like, was what is awkward. this Ready Player One? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, the world doesn't stand still, and it was also awkward to keep sort of having to fill the reader in on what had gone on in this gap that he wasn't privy to. So Martin scrapped the five-year gap which meant that he had to write a lot of events that he hadn't planned on having to write, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason that the series has ballooned out of all control 
uh, which is a thing that we're going to get to later. Uh, anyway, so those are the three reasons why those people... And so, in the end, he had to resign himself to the fact that he is going to have, like, 15 or 16-year-olds saving the entire world, and it might feel a little weird, but it's apparently it's the lesser of two evils. I mean, that's not... A, that's It's not an uncommon theme for me to... Um, as, as an anime viewer, the hero is also, like, is always, almost, almost always, like, a uh, barely pubescent young man right who's like oh and I still have to do my math homework and, <laughs> but I also have to save the world but um yeah although he's going for a pretty high level of believability with mm. these stories so he's he's not he's not wanting you to just wave your hand and say oh okay genre fiction whatever mm-hmm. he's wanting you to feel like these events could actually happen in some imaginable yeah. world and you know it's um the youth will save us I mean, I hope so. They don't seem inclined to, but I hope they do. Blue wave. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Edit that out. This is not a political <laughs> podcast, Will. We tried that, and it didn't work. Um, so I, I, I am excited to read the book. Um, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, which is a statement I've been thinking we never really need to say. <laughs> we do it for honesty, but it's so useless. I kind of like the honesty of it. Okay. I don't know. Well, I was saying to Keith one time... Uh, I actually am a big fan of reading uh, a novel after I watch the on-screen adaptation. Right. Tell uh, me why. It, it, I, so, it's very common, obviously, that everyone, they read a book they love, they watch the adaptation, and, and there's just so many flaws or yeah. things that were done worse. And it's, it's very rare. I mean... Once you watch the on-screen version, you could never know what the difference would be. Hmm. You know, so what I think. So this is what I did with the Expanse. I didn't. I didn't know the Expanse series even was books. Right. I found the show totally randomly while browsing the internet and became obsessed, and watched I think f- three or four seasons before reading the novels, mm-hmm. and um, and then, so the same same with Game of Thrones here is that. I watch the show, I know the the sort of basic arc or right. arcs that happen. It's been a long time since I watched it. And now getting to read the book is like I get to go much deeper into it. Right. And so it's not, it's it can't detract at all from the experience that I've already had, yeah. probably. Yeah. What it's doing is it just makes it richer. And, and what I've actually done with The Expanse now is like I bounce back and forth. Hmm. So, then after I finish this book, I could then go back and watch Game of Thrones again. Right. And then I'm getting three separate levels, all of sort of enjoyment. Yeah. Because I'm already I'm already faithful to enjoying the show. So even if I read this book and I'm like, oh, the book is so much better or more in-depth, it doesn't make the experience that I've already had worse. Yeah. And so it's just my joy is just on this upward <laughs> upward trend. And I, I like the idea of, because it's it's a, 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 a sort of fantasy world like this, it's the backstory is so interesting. Yeah. You know, the intricacies. And, 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 and so in terms of watching the show, you know, it's like, it's like an iceberg. And you're like, wow, that's a great iceberg. But then you have this book, 
and it's all the stuff that's underwater, and mm. it's just so rich. Yeah. And then there's all the lore stuff that you get into. Oh my god. So it's 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 just to watch the show and enjoy the show, and now be reading the book and enjoying it. I just know now there's so much more that I can enjoy. And I don't think, I don't think having, I mean, like I'm reading this now and I'm just in suspense mm. because I know what's going to happen. <laughs> and so every page I'm like, oh my God, they don't even know right. what's coming to them. This is going to be terrible. And so it's actually, it's very um, exciting. And like my anticipation levels are like, like I like, I don't, like I'm not to the end of the Daenerys chapter but I know what's going to happen. Right. And I just keep thinking, oh my God, she's only 13 in this right. book. <laughs> uh, so. I love what you said there. You said your suspense levels are really high because you know what's going to happen. Yeah, isn't that That's odd? so counterintuitive, and yet it makes so much sense. It's Because um, you could guess. And the, I, there is the excitement of, you know, like the spoiler. Mm. Um, but I think because books, and especially books like this that are so dense, yeah, it's not about the reveal, you know, right. it's about the writing and, 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 and the depth that it goes to. And, and I don't, I'm definitely, obviously I'm not, there's something to not knowing, mm. but it, but because I know it, and, and it's really, it really makes it, it's, uh, it's suspenseful. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> in, in the pace of it, you know, it's like, it's like a drip feed. Yeah. And like my mind is like, when I first, when I first picked up the book, it was hard to read because it was even just getting through the first couple pages. I was like, Oh my God, like when is something going to happen? Like, when's it going to happen? Like, yeah. um, Yeah. And he, he loves to, I think he loves to play with that expectation because there are chapters, as you know, where massive events take place that are deeply shocking and Mm. emotional and change everything for the future of the story and there are other chapters that, that really are slow burns where it, it doesn't really feel like anything of consequence is happening or if it is happening it's taking forever um, and I think the most striking example of that is in book three eventually you're going to get to the Red Wedding years from now years from now right <laughs> if you continue on this path uh, you'll reach the Red Wedding which is probably the most infamous event in either the book series or the television show and that chapter goes on and on and on with nothing happening. And that's, even if you didn't know already that something was about to go horribly wrong, you would know anyway. Yeah. Because he spends so much time on inconsequential details of mm. who's dancing with whom and what they wore and what they ate. And for a while you're like, oh, he's creating an atmosphere and isn't this nice? And then the longer he spends on the nothing that is happening... You, you could tell something was you st- wrong. I mean, I knew already, but like this sinking oh, right, because, feeling okay. starts to build in mm-hmm. your gut. And he just stretches it out and out and out. And it's agony. And he's on record saying he wrote that chapter last of that book. Oh, wow. Because he didn't want to write it. He was genuinely upset. So he knew exactly what was going to happen in that chapter, and he would write all the, all the mm-hmm. subsequent events. He would go ahead, go ahead and deal with the aftermath. He didn't want to write that actual chapter because he was so upset himself by what he was going to have to do. Mm. Or, or, his, or his captives in his basement didn't want to write it for him. Right. Well, that is our theory, right? That he's a <laughs> that I really enjoyed that theory, <laughs> right? That he's got a. Although, if he had captives in his basement who were doing the writing for him, I think he would 
probably have uh, book six by now. Mm. Which is, again, that's a subject we're going to get to. Maybe he forgot to feed them when he went on tour, and that's actually what happened. It looks like he's maybe been eating their food himself. (laughs) I don't want to fat shame the guy, but he is fat, and he should be ashamed. Uh, Not of being fat, but of not finishing his books. Uh, Right, so... So anything else that jumps out at you as far as differences between the book and the show or similarities so far uh, or anything that, that particularly struck you? Well, it's been so long since I watched season one, like when it came out, which was like a decade ago. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but one one thing that stood out to me plot-wise was I didn't remember um, Catelyn. Do they say Catelyn? Yeah. I didn't remember the scenario of, of Catelyn Stark sort of pushing Ned to go to King's Landing as much as she does in the book. Yeah. Like, I in the show, I don't remember exactly, but I sort of felt like everyone was like, no, we shouldn't do this, but I have to. In the show, they gave her exactly the opposite point of view. That's, uh, that's I couldn't remember. It's they so completely long. flipped. But that, in this book, I was like, oh my God, she's killing him. Yeah, and I think, I think that's exactly why they did it. Um, I, there, is, there is a very vocal hatedom of Catelyn Especially among book, hate them being the opposite of a fandom, right? Yeah. Uh, in in the novel following. Yeah. yeah, I mean probably both, but I think the most vocal people are probably novel people. Uh, a lot of people just despise that character, um, and, and I think it's largely unfair and arguably kind of sexist. Uh, but they despise her in part because of the consequences of some of mm. her actions, um, and I think. I think the show writers decided to make that change because they didn't make a lot of changes mm-hmm. in season one, especially. They were pretty faithful. I think they decided to make that change because they really wanted people to like Catelyn. Mm. And so they felt like the argument of you should be here with your family was more sympathetic than the argument of you have to take advantage of this political opportunity. Yeah. I think it was a good choice. Her character in in the show is definitely much more likable than she's portrayed in, in the in the chapters here because she's you know putting the pressure on Ned to go south and also just being so stone cold to Jon Snow yeah and so those two things are sort of really big plot points two two big main characters with a lot of implications and she's just like terrible right at all her interactions with them definitely one of the reason people hate Cat is because they love Jon Snow Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Jon Snow also. And I, I do think that criticism of her is the most valid. It, you know, if we're going to take her as a as a moral entity, right? Uh, yeah, her inability to love or, or even be civil to Jon Snow is probably her greatest moral failing. Mm-hmm. I think most of the stuff that she gets criticized for, uh, you can put in the category of kind of tactical errors or strategic errors, mm-hmm. but it's way too easy to do that with hindsight. And the same thing with Ned. You know, there's a whole narrative... Uh, show people and book people. Oh, Ned is such an idiot. He's so naive. He gets himself into so much trouble in book one that he doesn't need to. Mm. Um, and I and I think I think that's a really superficial reading of what's going on. Uh, he's not an idiot. He's not naive. He's smart and he's experienced. Uh, but he is thrust into a situation where his values are in conflict with the values of the place where he goes, largely 
because he has values, and <laughs> most politicians in King's Landing don't. Um, and he can't be expected to be omniscient, and he can't be expected to see into everybody's heart and soul. Uh, there's a difference between knowing the Lannisters are corrupt and knowing how corrupt. So yeah. I think a lot of the criticism of Ned is also unfair, but the criticism of Catelyn is much more vicious. Yeah, I really didn't remember the setup or if they even how they presented it about how that he was only the Lord of Winterfell because his brother was killed. Right. And so he ended up with with Catelyn as his wife and being the Lord of Winterfell just because his older brother was killed and it was not what he was prepared for or what he wanted. Yeah. And so if he doesn't want that position and feels like he's not good at it, then how could you expect him to be good at all the other political things beyond that, you know, like this King's Landing thing. Like, I, I do think that's an important part of the background, although I would say at this point he has been the Lord of the North, mm-hmm. uh, for you know, the Lord Paramount of the North, hugely consequential position for 15 years, mm-hmm. and he has been really good at it. Yeah, uh, He's not a bad politician. He's good at a particular brand of politics. He's good at the politics of loyalty and honor and steadfastness and fairness, right? The, the values-driven and relationship-driven politics that you have in a place where resources are very scarce and people need to band together just to survive, Ned's really good at that. Uh, but the brand of politics that is practiced in King's Landing, which is not about survival, it's about ambition and artifice and, uh, and disloyalty, you know, he... It's not that he doesn't realize the rules are different down there. It's mm. just that he's playing a game that goes against his his character, goes mm. against his most central beliefs, and all of his experience as a politician. Uh, and he's given very few resources with which to do that. So, you, sure, I mean, you can criticize Ned's decisions, and some of them have horrifying consequences. Uh, but, uh, honestly, I, I think it's... I think it's important to ask yourself, what would you do differently if you were actually in that situation, not as a fictional character, but as a person? Mm. Uh, you know, how many of us could would handle it as well as Ned does? I wouldn't, and I don't think most of the people criticizing him would either. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're talking about like internet criticism, right? Most <laughs> most people who are like bantering on criticism on the internet probably, you know, are terrible people and would make terrible decisions. Yeah. They would have been long dead. <laughs> <laughs> They're certainly not people who, who one would imagine are notable for their moral courage. Uh, I mean, that's just old-timey, you know? Yeah, he is. He's pretty old school. Um, and He and chops he, off that guy's head and he's like, good fences, build good neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not what he says. Um, no, and, and I think the a more persuasive reading uh, of of the, the novels as a whole, right? I mean, you can't take book one in isolation. There's a larger story being told here. Uh, and this is not my reading. This is one that, that has been pointed out. But there is a large-scale conflict in the novels between the brand of politics that is all ruthless pragmatism and the brand that is more driven by love and loyalty and honor. Um, and in the long scope of the narrative, the latter brand of politics, exemplified by the Starks, is winning. Um, you know, the Starks have all reached very, very low points, and some of them are still at very, very low points. But the, the, of course the story is not of their destruction, but it's of their reascendance. Um, and the Lannisters begin the story pretty high and climb higher, mm. 
which of course means the story <laughs> is about their downfall. Not necessarily unilaterally or as a monolith, right? But if, if the two great patriarchal figures in these families are Ned and Tywin, uh, and Ned represents, uh, you know, virtues like love and loyalty, and Tywin represents uh, a- ambition uh, and ruthlessness, well, which, which set of values is ascendant in the narrative? It's not Tywin's. It's Ned's. Hmm. Um, and I, I think the, the perception that George Martin is telling a cynical story or a nihilistic story is deeply false and deeply confused. I, I don't think there's any reason to believe he said himself that he's not a nihilist, that the story is not nihilistic. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't come across like it's nihilistic. Even, even when people take him at his word, when he says all the characters are gray, even that is a mistake. They're not all gray. Mm. There's no one who's purely good in A Song of Ice and Fire, just like there's no one who's purely good in the world. But there are characters who, in the context of the narrative, are effectively moral heroes. Mm. And there are, even more so, there are characters in the context of the narrative who are just the worst villains you could possibly Mm. imagine. And uh, Tywin's arguably not even the worst of them. (laughs) Um, We're definitely not telling a story about how everything is murky and complicated and therefore values don't matter, we're more likely telling a story about everything is murky and complicated and that's why values matter. Mm. And it does, it does matter if you, st- even if you lose, it still matters that you stood up for what you believe. Well, I think when, probably when he's saying gray characters, I think he's talking about the, the, the 50 shades <laughs> wherein, you know. Right. So no one is pure white or pure black, it's... But everyone is into sexual bondage. Flogged. Yeah. I actually don't know anything about that story. I just... I think it's something about sexual bondage. <laughs> I, I guess I, I had this impulse, if you think this is at all interesting, to sort of give my little autobiography in terms of this material. Oh, definitely. Uh, you think that's worth the time? Um, I, I guess I feel like when I mention Game of Thrones to people, <laughs> they almost always say the same thing. They say, I'm the only person who hasn't seen it. And I just don't think I could ever get into it. <laughs> Every single person says they're the only person. Is that what you said? Uh, some variation. Of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some version. I don't think I said I was. No, I might have actually. I might have said I was the only person. Uh, if you're listening, you're not the only person. You're not alone. You are one of many millions. In fact, most people in the world, even the developed world, have not seen Game of Thrones. So don't don't think you're unique. Uh, it is, of course, honorable and good if you sincerely don't want to watch it, and then you don't watch it. That's great. Uh, I resisted watching it for a long time, partly maybe just because it was popular and I was being uh, contrarian, and partly partly because a new show is a commitment, right? It takes time. It takes effort. And then also, there was this thing in season three where the Red Wedding happened on the show, and it was this massive moment on social media. It was like all anybody was talking about for a couple of days, and people seemed genuinely gutted by this event. And I thought, well, I I just don't need that in my life. I don't don't need another excuse to feel bad. I go to fiction to feel good. Um, So I don't want any part of this. And... uh, there, there was a moment when I realized that something was really going on with this show, something special, 
I watched an episode, like an episode at random, at a party in New York City, someone's birthday party. And they, it was, happened to be the night the new episode was on. This would have been season six, I think. Uh, it's a raging party. Yeah, it was, oh, it was wild. <laughs> it was like eight actors in an apartment watching a fantasy show. <laughs> Great party. Nuts. Uh, yeah, they were they were they were nerds, but um, but so was I. So Emma, yeah, they were they we I. Uh, so we watched the show, and I couldn't. You know, did I think it was great? I couldn't follow. I had no idea what was happening, and we were constantly cutting the new character. I didn't know who they were. The story didn't seem to be moving forward. It was like all these little snippets from different storylines. I was totally lost. Yeah, HBO shows are notorious for that. If you drop in the middle. It was it was meaningless. It was handfuls and handfuls of characters. <laughs> so the show was whatever. I you know I, I think it was the um, it was actually a really important episode. It was the Tower of Joy episode with the flashback to the Tower of Joy and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> try not to get too spoilery, but I don't uh, remember much. It doesn't matter. So uh, so watching the episode meant nothing to me. But when the episode was over everyone had like an intense half hour long discussion about what had happened and what it meant. And I thought, well, that's interesting. People are definitely invested in this story. Mm. And then there was one specific moment when I decided something really special was happening here. And it was when one person said this, one person said, well, the wall was built by magic. And another person responded, what kind of magic? (laughs) (laughs) And that was when I knew this show really had something because these are adults. I mean, in their 20s, but these are adults. Reasonably old enough to go to war. Definitely old enough to die in somebody else's <laughs> war. Uh, and they were sincerely asking the question, what kind of magic? built?" And I was like, that's cool. Whatever else you think of the show, that's cool. That's not when I started watching it. Then a couple of years later, uh, a, a dear friend whose judgment I respect grabbed my arm and said, you have to watch the show. I can't believe you haven't seen this show. And I turned to my sister Darcy, who was there at the time. She'd already seen the six seasons that existed at that moment. Uh, and I said, well, look, would you start at episode one with me and rewatch it? Because if so, then I'll, then I'll do it. And Darcy was like, yes, we'd love it. She and her husband, right? We'd love it. We'd love it. They didn't have a kid at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, they did things like watch TV. Uh, so I started watching it with Darcy and Theo. So this was 2016. And, uh, and it really, I'm not exaggerating, it was one of the golden eras of my life. I had just moved back to Connecticut from New York city. Mm. I was, I think it was around the time I started trying writing my first novel just to see mm. whether I could do it just really purely to see if I could finish a novel. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was driving back and forth to their house in West Cornwall, listening to Jason Isbell, whom I had recently discovered. Uh, and we, we'd watch three or four episodes of game of Thrones in an evening. We would eat, we would eat pasta. We would drink uh, Laphroaig. We would watch Game of Thrones. And the I was obsessed with the show from the ending of episode one. Do you remember the the very last scene in episode one? It's when Bran is climbing the tower. Oh, yeah. He looks through the window and he sees Jamie and Cersei. The end of that scene, the end of the episode, I was completely hooked. I didn't see it coming. Not for a moment. And uh, and I just couldn't believe this was where the story had gone. Um so then I watched the six seasons. Then I had another moment with the books of, uh, I know this already. I know this story. I've seen it. Why do I want to? There's five of these books. They're a thousand pages each. Mm. Uh, I guess I'll just start one. And again, like the, I think it was the prologue. I don't know. As soon as I started it, 
I just had to keep going. And I don't know what's so addictive about these books. I, I don't know what kind of magic is in there. The pages are dusted with cocaine. It feels like that. <laughs> it, I have never had that experience. With I, You know, there are other books I love mm-hmm. and have been obsessed with. I have never before had the experience where it literally felt compulsive. Like I had to turn the page. Like I had to see. And it wasn't just the story because one, I knew the story. And two, it doesn't move that fast. It's it's the whole world that he created, the texture of that world. People say George Martin's not a good writer of prose, like oh he's got an amazing imagination, but like his prose is pretty bad. That's complete nonsense. Mm. Uh, Yo, know, uh, is it is it the finest prose ever written? No. Are there awkwardnesses in it that are characteristic of genre fiction more than serious fiction? Yes. I think a lot of people just think of prose as like how far down a metaphor spiral can you go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if your idea of good prose is masturbatory, then it's not good prose. Uh, I mean, that is a kind of prose that I am interested <laughs> in. <laughs> Me too, but that's a different thing. Uh, no, I mean, I think it's, I, I'm tempted to just open up to any page and read a sentence and, and you know, talk about the prose. <laughs> Do you want to? Sure, let's do that. Let's do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna literally read the first sentence that I come upon, and we're gonna see what we think of it as prose. Last night he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. That's not enough. All right. <laughs> Last night he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time the dream had gone farther than before. In the dark he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned he saw that the vaults were opening one after the other. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's sort of basic. Like there aren't, you know, the, 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 the grammar or the, uh, the vocabulary, it's not, but I don't think that's. A bad thing when you can describe a story with you know regular words. Yeah, that I don't have to look up in on my phone. Right. I, I think that's that's artful. Right. Why use a ten dollar word when a ten cent word will do? Um, I agree. It's it's highly serviceable. Right. It's telling the story. It's getting the job done. Although there is some poetry in this. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. That's a very beautiful sentence, just in terms of the sound of it. Yeah. Um, so it's not like he has no ear yeah. for language and the poetic possibilities of language, but he does put uh, the storytelling uh, front and center as, as well he should, because he's a storyteller. Mm. Uh, I don't understand the accusation that he's not a good writer of prose. Maybe if you're comparing him to F. Scott Fitzgerald, then maybe he's not a good writer of prose. Yeah. But if you compare him to... Almost anyone else. <laughs> He's very, very good. Anyway. So tell me, what do you, where, what's your stance on, if, unless it's too much of a digression, on, on sort of book movie? Is this, do you normally, what else have you seen the adaptation of before you read? Or is this sort of a, a, a unique time? Yeah, it's pretty unique. I don't think I'd normally do that. Um, or it just, or how do you feel about it? What do you think? I, I, I really enjoy it, and I, I think it's a great way to go, and I would probably do it in the future with other yeah. um, book adaptations. Yeah, I, uh, I, my, my 
tendency is to take maybe the more conventional view that if I'm ever going to read the book, I should read it before I see the movie. Mm. I think part of the reason for that is that the movie, uh, it's not just that the movie so often fails to capture all the magic of the book, which is pretty inevitable because movies are short. Mm. Um, it's also that the movie is just frequently just bad. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, you know, uh, now I've seen Ready Player One mm. and it was bad. Mm. Uh, I'm sure I could read that book and enjoy it, but having the discount version of that experience doesn't, isn't like the best lead in mm. to the real experience. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the right introduction. Now it happens that the Game of Thrones show was really good up to a given point. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly was pretty sold on it for up to the point when I started <laughs> reading the books. Um, so I think that's a different situation where it is a good gateway drug because it's awesome. Um, but, but yeah, I guess part of my fear is, you know, if I watch the movie, The Golden Compass, then I'm going to be kind of soured on Philip Pullman in general mm. without ever actually having read any Philip Pullman. <laughs> I, I just uh, ordered those books. I just ordered the first one. I gave myself both, all three for Christmas. Happy Christmas. And Ready Player Two. Nice. And then you gave me this, and I'm like, well, sorry. see you in 2030. I, <laughs> I may have... Uh... I may have read your No, I'm your glad life. you did. I made, you know, I wanted to definitely read before doing this episode, um, and I definitely want to keep reading, but I, I may take a break and read Ready Player Two before I lose. I think that's valid. It, it should be pretty quick. I think you should consider reading Ready Player One. I don't think it's great, but it was entertaining. Yeah. And I probably should read it. It was, it was, um, I watched the movie first and then read the book and then watched the movie again. That's what I. That's actually what I like to do. I like to do a book sandwich, <laughs> with 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 these the screen adaptation on both ends. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I mean, that's a very thorough approach. I can see how that could be. Fun. I think it's just it's it's. I like sci-fi, especially, um, and why not? Why not? You know, get all you can out of it for sure. Instead of going and looking for something new when I'm so lazy. I guess the other thing that sort of surprised me about reading Song of Ice and Fire, having already watched the show, is that despite how amazing most of the casting on the show is, and it's really, really well cast, mm. I wasn't picturing the actors when I was reading the books. What about in the steamy scenes? At all. <laughs> well, I'm always picturing <laughs> Amelia Clark naked in a bathtub. Always. Regardless of the situation. Um... No, like even even like people I would have said defined their character perfectly, like uh, like Nikolai Coster Waldau playing Jamie. Uh, I love his performance, and I love the character of Jamie in the book. But I do see them as kind of two separate things, hmm. um, which is odd in a way. But I, I think it's probably a tribute to George R. R. Martin's writing and just how well he's able to put you in this imaginary world. I think you probably have a literary mind. You probably are able to build that scene. More actively than like someone like myself, who you know burnt out those neurons <laughs> through various substances. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely like to lean on the visual imagery from the show, yeah, and then expand on it. That's sort of how sure. I look into it. It's, it just seems like an easier, easier way, right. to to get through, especially something as dense as this. I can't sit there all day 
trying to re-fire <laughs> re my broken brain. Well, to be clear, I don't I don't stop and take a minute and picture the character every time someone oh, new comes well, in. Well, no, I would have to. Oh, okay. That's what I mean. I would have to sort of, like, get the hamster wheel <laughs> running, right. running up. Let me see now. A tall man with a long white beard. I wonder what he should look like. The hamster only runs for methamphetamines, and he's not getting any more. <laughs> I feel like the theme of this episode has really been uh, the darkest uh, periods in your life. Yeah, well, you know, it's very Game of Thrones. It is, that's right. You have to go to that low point in order to rise again. It was a Stark. It's it was like a the Stark Battle game. of the Bastards. It's <laughs> I can't remember exactly what happens in that, but I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, that was one of the deepest... Keep on with your thing. But that was one of the like most disturbing episodes for me. That yeah. disturbed me more than The Red Wedding. I, yeah, just... well, and that, that's an example of something that has happened in the show that has not happened in the books. At all. Uh, at all. Mm. Yet. It probably will in some way, shape, or form. Probably not the Was same that the way. last season? No, that was season six. Ah. So this, I think, is where we should get into the publication history of the books. Lay it on A little me. bit. I think that's a pretty interesting subject. Um, so the first book, the first three books came out pretty rapidly. Martin has the first glimmer of an idea in 1991. Uh, he writes up a little, a few chapters, goes away and works on some television projects, comes back to it. First book is published 1996, A Game of Thrones. Second book came out only three years later, 99. Uh, that was A Clash of Kings. Third book, Storm of Swords, the year after that. So we're talking about a period of only four years. We've had three of these books. We're on a good pace. However, the whole series was supposed to be three books originally. When he first pitched it to the publisher, he said, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy, and here are the titles, and here's what happened. You know, like, he's not really much of an outliner. He's talked about this. He's a gardener, not an architect, is how he puts it. Uh, so he didn't really know. Goddamn hippies. Yeah, he's a... Anti-war flag. <laughs> <laughs> he's sort of, you know, one of those people. Uh, so, uh, right, so so the, the as, as he loves to say, and I think this is a phrase from Tolkien, the tale grew... In the telling, so by the time he'd published the first three books, it was pretty apparent that uh, the, the series was going to be five books, and then by the time he finished the fourth book, it had become two books, and so it was already five. Anyway, so at this point, it's supposed to be a seven-book series, he thinks, and five of these books have come out, and the most recent one to come out came out in 2011. Wow. Which is already... A decade ago, when they started making the show, people would ask George R. R. Martin, "Hey, you know, you haven't finished this series, the book series. Will you be able to stay ahead of them as they keep producing new seasons of the show?" And he said very confidently, "Oh yeah, yeah, I can stay ahead of the show." Uh, so he published one book while the show was ongoing. That was 2011, and he's been working on book six, "The Winds of Winter," ever since, and. His fans have gotten increasingly frustrated and disenchanted, and in some cases, furiously angry. Mm. <laughs> and there is a very vibrant online culture of people just slamming George R. R. Martin for cashing out and leaving them in the dust mm. as they as they perceive it, which I don't think is really what happened. But, uh, but there's a lot of controversy surrounding just the sheer amount of weight. And he's an older man. He's in his... 70s. I meant to look this up before we started. I think he's 70. He looked old. 
Yeah, he's not old. I'm not ancient, right? He's in his early 70s, 72 or 3 or something like that, right? So he's not like, uh, you know, Joe Biden old or anything. But uh, but he's but he's getting up there. Um, he's not he's not in in trim shape, uh, which is a risk factor, as you know, for heart disease, which is the number one killer uh, of Americans. Uh, anyway, some people are worried that he will never finish this series. Um, and meanwhile, the show had to keep going past when they ran out of books, right? So the, roughly each book was a season, roughly, for the first five. Mm-hmm. Um, even though some storylines fell ahead and some fell behind and some changes were made so as to make certain storylines kind of unrecognizable. Um, roughly it's a book a season for the end of season five. And then they just ran out of book. <laughs> And so with season six, they started making... Now, you know, Martin wrote for the show and he consulted with these guys. He's been heavily involved, or at least early on he was heavily involved um, with producing the show. But as time went on, and perhaps as the egos of the two showrunners grew and grew, as their fame grew, certainly, Mm -hmm. and their prestige, and perhaps their self-opinion, Martin started to sort of slowly back away from his involvement with the show just when they needed him the most. <laughs> because now there were no more books to adapt. And so season six, they started making stuff up. And at first it was really exciting. Because the pace of the show really accelerated. They're no longer beholden to the source material. They're no longer doing this slow burn. And so in season six, a lot of long-awaited plot developments started to happen. Mm-hmm. And characters who had never met started to meet and form alliances and... Uh, you know, villain, villains, important villains died, and it started to feel like, oh, this story's really going somewhere. It's really going to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, there were already, at that point, a lot of people who were book fans who were pretty vocally upset yeah. about choices that had been made that they felt were lazy and unrealistic, and in retrospect, they probably were. <laughs> but it was pretty easy, at least for me, to forgive you know any kind of inconsistencies because we were, we were getting somewhere, right? We were yeah. going to finish this story. Is that like when Jon Snow and Daenerys? No, that's that that's was, later. That was so that hadn't, but that's made up, right? So in the books, Jon Snow and Daenerys have never, never met. met. Okay, and indeed they're on different continents. Actually, in the books, Daenerys hasn't even met Anyone. Tyrion. <laughs> uh, she hasn't even met Tyrion. They're, they're oh. they are in the same place. They have they have seen each other. They have laid eyes on each other, mm. but they have never spoken. Uh, as of where we are. In the book narrative. Um, so, so yeah, so the show got way ahead. And it was in season seven that it started to feel like, to me, like the wheels were coming off. <laughs> they went too uh, fast. Well, it just, it just started to make no sense. Out of, I mean, the main plot line of season seven was this journey beyond the wall uh, to, to bring back a, a dead guy and... None of that made any sense. The The objective didn't make any sense. The way they went about it didn't make any sense. The fact that they didn't all die made no sense. The way in which they were rescued made no sense. That whole storyline was just... It was a waste of time. It, it didn't advance the, the story. So the story was both moving too quickly and too slowly. That's what happens. It's like the Queen's Gambit. It, yeah, yeah, maybe. it's Well, it's, it's what happens when... Two guys who became famous adapting the work of a genius decided that 
they were the geniuses. Uh, and I don't know <laughs> how they convinced themselves. They did a really good job for quite a while of adapting the work of a master storyteller, like a top-level, all-time storyteller. They did a really good job of that. Um, and then at some point, they started to believe like it was their story, like it was their show. And, and they, they, they abandoned the impulse which had brought them to it in the first place, which was their love of the books and their desire to do them justice on the screen. Um, Maybe that's just what they said there. Maybe they saw the book and they just saw the dollar signs. Maybe, although I bet it was a tough sell to HBO. Right? There, there hadn't been any massively successful fantasy TV shows before. And it was hugely expensive and ambitious. And, you know, it's a show with dozens of named characters. But it was, it was like, it was after The Lord of the Rings and... and, and... Right. Harry Potter had been going at that point. Yes. So it wasn't outlandish that HBO would also try to cash in on the fantasy wave. That's valid. That's although it's it's certainly a lot more adult and challenging material than either of those two. Yeah. I mean it HBO wouldn't put out Harry Potter unless the kids were like <laughs> drug addicts or something. They're, they're all porn stars. <laughs> Harry Potter, but they're all porn stars. <laughs> Here's a hundred million dollars. No, I mean, yeah, you're right. There were reasons to think it was a good bet, but there were also reasons to think that it wasn't. And the the cast were mostly not really famous people. Mm. They were mostly just great British actors. Um, I always wonder if that how hard that must be to be sort of pulled from obscurity, yeah, and to become like an instant icon, and then to what to do after that, yeah. Oh, it's. T- I mean, Kit Harrington has had some significant mental health issues. Uh, uh, that's Jon Snow. Jon Snow, yeah, uh, plays Jon Snow. Yeah, um, it seems like a like a genuinely sweet person and someone who takes it really, really seriously. And uh, that it took its soul. I mean, especially around the last season. I don't know to what extent it was the show wrapping up. To what extent it was the response to it. Uh, and I guess that brings us to that, to to season eight, where. Um, where the the writing the writing went from sloppy and confusing to uh, just just um, uh, what's the word? Will what I, do you call it? You're the guy with words. I I, <laughs> I have feelings that I can't express. Should I get my guitar? Uh, that would be nice. Yeah. Let's have a song about season eight. No, I mean, and there are there are people who disagree with this. Um, but my experience was seasons one through six, it felt like a cohesive story. And so six was an off book. Right. Okay. Right. Now, partly this is colored by the fact that I watched one through six all in a row, right? Mm-hmm. So I see them as a unit because I experienced them as a unit. Okay. It's part of what's going on there. I acknowledge that. But it felt like there was a big drop off in quality as of season seven. But I was still on board because I love these characters and I wanted to see how the story ended. Mm-hmm. And then, and even, you know, the first couple episodes of season eight, it was like, okay, you know, we're, we're not George R. R. Martin level anymore, but we've accepted that. We've embraced that. Um, that season, uh, episode two of season eight was actually quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And premieres can be weird. Yeah. Sometimes they do weird stuff when they roll in a new season because they know they have your attention and can get away with it. Yeah. So, so it's not like the whole season was garbage. Um, there was actually some really good stuff in it and, and meaningful stuff. So what was uh, the word you were looking for? The writing was, I mean, 
insulting. Oh wow! It it was it was insulting. At a, at a certain point, the Chuck choices Stowe says "f you, Keith." It, it felt that way. No, it didn't feel that way. That would have been more meaningful. Uh, it felt like Benioff and Weiss were saying "f you, Keith." Mm. Uh, if it felt like Jon Snow were saying that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be like, fair enough, Jon. Jon Snow was saying, you're not, help me. <laughs> I mean, Kit Harrington was definitely saying, help me. Kill me. Um, yeah, I mean, the cast were were really upset. Um, maybe they were upset in part because the show was ending and endings are hard. But I think they were upset in part because they've been telling this story for a decade of their lives at this point, And it became yeah. clear that the people who were steering the ship had just checked out. Yeah, They just didn't care anymore. Um, there's really no other reading of it. There's a difference, there's a palpable difference between a storyteller doing his best and falling short and a storyteller throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall, hoping it'll stick and knowing he'll get paid either way. That's comedy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah, well, that's tragedy. Um, did they, was there ever talk of, of doing a hiatus or they couldn't, with a cast that big, there's no way... You mean while he finished the books? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the problem there is uh, he still hasn't. Mm. He still hasn't even finished book six, much less book seven. Mm. So... But maybe if they had waited. You know, maybe season five was the time to take a break. Maybe. And uh, Yeah, I I don't think that would have been a viable strategy. mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and largely because the cast is going to move on. And, and because HBO has financial incentives. I mean, this was their cash cow. It was their big show. Yeah. Um, they definitely didn't want to put it on pause. Um, what there was a lot of talk about, real talk about, was having more seasons or longer seasons. You know, HBO was, they were making, you know, the cast, maybe they wanted to move on to other projects. That could have been an issue. Yeah. But, um, but at least two of the people who said no, we're not going to do more episodes, and we're certainly not going to do more seasons, were Benioff and Weiss, the creators, uh, the so-called creators, the showrunners. Right? Mm. Um, they they wanted to move on to other projects. They were offered a Star Wars trilogy. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if the timeline lines up for that to be their motivation. I think maybe they got offered that trilogy later after they had already decided. But but certainly their mentality was. Well, now we're the biggest writers in Hollywood. Okay. We can do anything we want. Mm. So let's let's finish this bullshit <laughs> in whatever way we can. Get it out of the way and move on to fame and glory. Mm. Um, and I don't understand having that attitude toward the work that they had every reason to know whatever they did in the future would be their defining uh, piece. You know, no one creates a second show as big. As Game of Thrones, right? It's it was the it was this massive cultural. It was the biggest show in the world for years. Yeah, it's crazy, huge, huge, and still is huge. Um, so they knew that this was going to be their legacy. They knew that it was what they would be remembered for, and they still didn't care about finishing it up properly. I mean, I think objectivity is a hard. Is a, subjectivity yeah. is a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and ego's a hell of a drug, and yeah. and I I don't, you know, I've certainly run into commentators who. Uh, who are too eager to slander those two guys as having been soulless and talentless, uh, you know, hacks from the beginning. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's fair. I definitely don't think that they're talentless. I don't know if they were always 
soulless. I don't know but if the concept of a soul is, <laughs> is valid. I, I don't know if it exists. Let's ask John Cleese. Let, he'll know. John will know. Let's get him on the phone. Um, yeah, so I don't want to be one of those people just saying, oh, you know, these guys were always garbage and now they're just showing their true colors. Uh, I don't think that's fair. Uh, but there, there is no charitable reading of season eight, um, uh, un- unless, you know, unless both of them saw their entire families slaughtered in front of them, which did not happen. Uh, <laughs> even in which case, no, even then that wouldn't be an excuse because they could have let someone else take. They could have let a, a someone who cared, someone who had the energy and the focus and the commitment, take over and finish the story. They weren't, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know what their contract said, but. My guess is if they'd gone to HBO and said, hey, listen, we're checked out. We don't want to do this anymore. You can either finish the show in a half-assed way with us in like six episodes so we can get out the door, or we're happy to hand over the reins to someone else, maybe someone on our writing staff who still really believes in the story. I find it very hard to believe that HBO would have been like, no, it's you, Benioff and Weiss, that we care about. <laughs> and not the most popular television show of all time. It's you guys. <laughs> so I think their stance was we're too lazy to finish this properly and we're too too selfish to let anyone else do it. Um, and I, I just don't know if there's another way to, to read that um, because they're not talentless. If they were talentless, it would be more forgivable. You'd be like, oh, well, what do you expect from a couple of talentless hacks? Mm. But they're not talentless hacks. They've written good things. Most of the show is good. Um, so, so it has to be ego because there's nothing else... There's nothing else that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine um, these long-running projects. I can't even imagine what that experience is like being uh, like these long show movie franchises. uh, what What the experience would be to work on something for so long. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure it's extremely demanding and exhausting. And and they... What... If, if they felt burnt out, that's legitimate, right? Yeah, it's, it was an extremely intense process. But it wasn't only them giving a decade of their lives to this show. Yeah. It's hundreds of people. Um, so it's not, it's not just about we're tired and we don't want to bother to finish it properly. Um, it's also about the cast and it's about the crew and it's about millions of people all over the world who invested in this emotionally. And I guess... I know I'm on my soapbox here, and and maybe this is an impulse that I should try and restrain. I don't think so. Maybe it's not helpful to indulge in the emotional rhetoric, but the feeling of watching season eight is like Benioff and Weiss are are spitting in your face. Um, And this is what I think a lot of defenders of the show fail to understand, (laughs) is that people who are upset are not upset because they didn't like what was done to X character. They're upset because it didn't make any goddamn sense. Mm. Uh, you can do whatever you want to a character, right? You can you can kill them, you can torture them, you can drive them insane. You can bring them back you can to life, life them perform, kill them again. Right, whatever. <laughs> uh, have them do things that seem despicable or seem out of character. You can take people to really dark places. And all of that can be narratively legitimate and fascinating and cool. And the first five seasons gave plenty of examples of all of those things. Um, that's not the same as, fooled you, fooled you, we set up this story for seven seasons, and now we're telling this story for no reason. 
um, that's not the same. And, and as many, many people have pointed out, foreshadowing is not the same as character development. So sure, you can look back to earlier seasons and see seeds that were arguably planted. Mm-hmm. But foreshadowing where a character might end up is not the same as getting them there. You have to follow the chain of events that takes someone from point A to point B, especially if they're going to point Z. Mm-hmm. You have to trace that logic. So yeah, the hero can become the villain and the villain can become the hero and uh, the coward can can become the savior and all this stuff can happen. But it doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't happen because somebody rang a bell. It, it happens for reasons that are grounded in the emotional and psychological development of that character. And if you don't know how to do that, you have to call George Martin because he does. <laughs> they, they, you know, they had his phone number. They could have called him anytime. Mm. And I, I suspect, although I cannot prove this, that part of the problem is they alienated George Martin by acting like it was their show, by acting arrogant, by acting like big shots and ignoring his input. I think part of what happened was uh, he was he was sick of it. He was sick of their BS. And so he did retreat from the show. He stopped writing episodes. He stopped consulting so much. And, uh, and the show took a nosedive. Um, it must have been hard for him, too, the trying to write while also ga- gaining such notoriety yeah. and working on the show. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely been part of the problem. Yeah. It's to do something that dense requires more attention that he was probably, I mean, someone should have realized that they need to stop interviewing him. Yeah. Stop bugging him. Yeah. And there, look, there are things I think that he can legitimately be criticized for. I, you know, he is, his writing habits are not, disciplined uh he he is easily disrupted and distracted by side projects has uh, to go to the the fantasy figurine store uh yeah yeah that's probably <laughs> uh no it's a lot of stuff and like you know it's it's complicated because he's a free individual and he can do whatever he wants right it's his life uh but i think the feeling again the feeling like you owe people the ending of your story is not completely illegitimate it's not purely a symptom of a symptom of entitlement if you start telling a story you have created the legitimate expectation that you will finish it um not necessarily on exactly the schedule everyone wants but you know it's been 10 years now since the last book came out it's been 10 years so there's a lot of time in there to go down blind alleys and and pursue approaches that don't really work and pursue other projects and chill out and hang with your wife and run a movie theater in Santa Fe, New Mexico. There's a lot of time in there to do all of that stuff and still also give people the book that they want. Especially now. I mean, this was was the year for writing. He he is. He is writing. Uh, He has been writing more since the pandemic started. HBO um, probably released the coronavirus. They're, <laughs> they're tired of all the hate mail. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the fantasy that someone would now make a new TV show, uh, maybe once the books are done, that's a very compelling fantasy. I will say, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be proud of this, but I take some pleasure in the fact that uh, the subsequent projects that Benioff and Weiss have attempted to become involved with have uh, come to nothing. They were supposed to do a whole Star Wars trilogy, and that didn't happen. Uh, they have a you know multi-million dollar development deal with Netflix, and they haven't actually produced anything. 
they were going to make a show about an alternate version of U.S. history where the Confederacy won the slavery, Civil War, uh, which was considered to be um, a uh, political hot potato, <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons, uh, but it didn't happen. Um, and I do take some pleasure in the idea that, uh, that they, they may really be done as relevant creators, and I hope that they are, because they hurt a lot of people needlessly. Wow. And we're just getting started. <laughs> I feel like this episode has been therapy for me. Mm. That wasn't really my intention going in. I, I feel like maybe subconsciously I wanted to be on the public record, as public as our podcast is, yeah. uh, saying this stuff so that our six listeners... We'll know how I really feel. Well, I'm I'm happy to know how you feel. Thank you. I I, I hope this hasn't been too much of a self indulgence on my part. I think it's fine. <laughs> but I, so I I do want to. What do you think? Um, the a book a book release the next book release will be a healing process like that you can move on move back into the novels and try to move forward with the story. Oh, I've already moved back into the novels. Okay. Uh, I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching people's commentary. There's an extremely lively community of people still discussing these books. Mm -hmm. And it's a testament to the strength of the writing and the extraordinary complexity of his world that 10 years after the publication of the last book, there's still a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of symbolism to unpack. There's a lot of plot threads to untangle. Um, people have pretty plausible theories about where most of the storylines are going, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot to debate and there's still a lot being debated very, very passionately. And most of these people barely make reference to the show. Mm -hmm. um, most of these people, the people who are serious, I don't want to sound like a snob, but Game of Thrones is a gateway to A Song of Ice and Fire. And mm -hmm. A Song of Ice and Fire is way richer and more interesting. Yeah. Um, so I love Game of Thrones. I, I love the six seasons that got me hooked on that world and that story. I think the actors and the cinematographers did phenomenal work. Um, but it is, it is good and right that people who really care about that world are back to focusing on the novels, even though they don't have a new book. Yeah. And when there's a new book, you know, obviously that will be, that will be like, um, it would be like getting a fifth gospel of Jesus for a large number of people. <laughs> I was like, some people are, aren't waiting for that, Keith. I'm, some people are, are not looking are, forward to the, the next gospel. No, no, not everybody is. But yeah. some people are. Yeah. Some people are excited. Um, I'm very excited. And, and I am an optimist, and I do think he will finish mm. The Winds of Winter. It's even possible it'll come out later this year. Wow. Um, I, I, I think, frankly, hurry. it's not that unlikely that he'll finish... The last book, A Dream of Spring. Mm. Um, you know, when he's writing at a good pace, he can write a thousand-page book in, I don't know, two or three years. Uh -huh. uh, he's not that old. And I think once he sees the finish line, really sees the finish line, uh, he's going to feel energized and excited, and he's going to want to finish. Yeah, I mean, I bet a book release would energize the whole community. Yeah. And then the, that feedback would yeah fuel the fire and everybody can sort of heal and move on yeah i mean i hope that people uh are charitable in those responses i hope that people don't take the book release as another excuse to to slam or slander him mm. uh but i think likely you're right if if he 
When he does release a new book, the overwhelming response will be one of gratitude. And I think that will be balm for his soul. And I think one of the many things that he's hurting from is the ending of the show, which was extremely disappointing for fans, and I'm sure for him. Um, And it's, it's noticeable that right after the final episode aired, he was blogging not about the show, but about how he was writing again. Hmm. Um, and I think that, I think in some ways the end of the show helped him to, to realize that his story wasn't finished. Mm-hmm. Even if people had seen some kind of uh, cartoonish, watered-down version, <laughs> this, the real story wasn't finished, and people wanted to see how it actually ends. Yeah, I mean, it's... I am sort of standing at the entrance of this very... It's intimidating, I will say, but reading the book, it it goes down easily. You yeah, know, it's, it's it's captivating. I'm happy to move forward into it, and I um, um, look forward to reading more of it. Nice. I it, it's reminding me how intense the first the first season of the show was, how how captivating it was, and I'm looking forward to rewatching that as well. It's a long road ahead. It is, but I envy you. Because I can never read those books again for the first time. I hear if you rub high-powered magnets (laughs) against your head, maybe you could re-experience Game of Thrones for the first time. All right. Next episode, I'll tell you how that went. (laughs) Um, So is there anything we haven't touched on that you want? I mean, there normally is, but... uh, I mean, look. I mean, we could do a part two if if there's... If there's cause to. I think it's a topic we might want to come back to at some point. Okay. Um, certainly if Winds of Winter comes out. Oh, definitely. We should do another episode and talk about that. Um, no, I mean, there's not much more that I would want to say. Uh, I, I guess the thing that maybe I haven't said, or at least not in this episode, is uh, it... I still have trouble wrapping my mind around the fact that all of this complexity and nuance and detail and backstory came out of the mind of one person. I do like to bitch and moan about how slow he's been uh, on, the, on the most recent book. But when I think about the fact that in the scope of a human lifetime, a single person could write any of these books, um, I, I can only stand in awe and, uh, and humility and gratitude. I think he's a phenomenal storytelling genius, and I think we're lucky that he exists. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very interesting. Uh, I hope our listeners, if any, have enjoyed it as well. And uh, next week we will do a deep dive into something else to be determined. Yeah, I don't think we need to practice it. We'll just... We'll just do it. We'll see. Well, You, you know what? You'll see what it is next time, listeners. You know, I was thinking that maybe, Chill. maybe we should try an opposite episode. An opposite episode? Yeah. What's that? Where we come in with nothing. Whoa. And we just totally wing it. Okay. Can we discuss this after I turn off the microphone? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening. We've been Will and Keith and Embrace the Process. Yeah, email us. Will and Keith Embrace the Process at email.com. Like us on Soundbook and Instaface. <laughs> <laughs> that was horrible. All right. <laughs> Bye, guys.